Will you turn with me, please, to the 10th chapter of the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 10. Uh, this is a fun passage. I'm looking forward to, uh, to reading it uh, with you and commenting, commenting on it. This is the uh, story of the day the sun stood still, which is really not an accurate depiction of what happened on that day, but that's the way we normally uh, recall the, uh, the event. There have been up to this point four major conflicts. Uh, There was the siege of Jericho in which Israel was triumphant. There was the attack upon Ai uh, in which Israel was defeated. Then Ai again, the second assault on the city of Ai. Uh, Israel was victorious on that occasion. And then there was the defeat by the Gibeonites as we've seen what uh, appears on the surface to be a victory was in fact a defeat. It occurred to me this, this past week in thinking through the early chapters of Joshua that you win a few and you lose a few. Uh, Israel uh, actually was two for four out of the first uh, four conflicts. Uh, the greatest baseball player that ever lived only hit uh, 400, which means he failed more times than he succeeded. That's life. That's the way, uh, that's the way we do battle. Uh, I've pointed out before that the, the conquest of the land in Joshua is analogous to the conquest of all that God has in store for us. The land represents the, uh, the full, rich gift of God in Jesus Christ. Everything is ours because we know him. There are enemies scattered throughout the land, enemies of our soul, spiritual enemies uh, who are out to subvert our faith, to, uh, to blunt it, to distort it, to undermine our confidence in God. Uh, to destroy us, and uh, we will win a few of those conflicts, and we will lose a few until our Lord comes back, and uh, then we'll win them all. We'll have it all at that point. Uh, it seems to me that this is a message that comes through in, in the book of Joshua time and time again. Now, as we've seen through the first uh, conflicts in Joshua, the nation drove a wedge across the middle of the land, across the land of Canaan, separating the northern city-states from the southern uh, villages and towns, city-states, and uh, preventing all an all-Canaanite rebellion. But there was a coalition of Canaanite cities forming in the south, and it's about that that these opening uh, verses speak. Let's, let's look first at, at verse 1 of chapter 10. Now Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king. It struck me as I read through these verses uh, this past week that, that this uh, conflict had become very personal. The, uh, the, the king of Jerusalem realized what had been done to Ai's king and Jericho's king, and so he set out to form uh, this coalition to protect himself as well as his land. Uh, he and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities, it was larger than I, and all its men were good fighters. The Hebrew text actually says they were heroes. They were heroic uh, figures. Uh, and yet uh, they had been forced, or they had felt that they had been forced into a treaty with uh, the nation of Israel rather than do battle with them. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Hoham, king of Hebron, Purim, king of Yarmouth, Yaphia, king of Lachish, and Deborah, king of Eglon. Come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua 
and the Israelites. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Yarmouth, Lachish, and Eglon, joined forces. They moved up with all their troops and took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. That is, they laid siege on this, uh, this great city. This is the first mention in the Old Testament of the city of Jerusalem by name. The city existed for hundreds of years, perhaps uh, even a couple of thousand years before this, this event. We know it from the time of, of Abraham as the city of Salem. And that was its name then. The king at that time was a man, a man named Melchizedek, which is very close to this name, Adonai Zedek. You'll notice the Zedek. Adonai Zedek means my Lord is righteous. Melech Zedek means the king is righteous. Apparently this is a title. This is a, a throne name rather than a personal name, which the kings of the city of Jerusalem uh, bore. This is the city that later became the city of God. This is the city that represents the people of God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, what we would call uh, the church or God's uh, new Israel, the people of God now. But at this point, uh, it was in the hands of the enemy. It was enemy territory. And this king, along with four other kings whose names are given, along with their cities, formed a federation to besiege Gibeon. And uh, the Gibeonites, uh, in verse 6, sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal. They had gone back to Gilgal to regroup. And uh, uh, the word was, uh, was sent, do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us, help us, because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. As you recall from last week, Israel had formed a league with Gibeon. Uh, they had a treaty with them. It was inviolate. They, they, must, they, they had to keep their word. Uh, this is an illustration of what, what the 15th Psalm calls swearing to your own heart, uh, your own hurt. Uh, very often we make decisions to do a certain thing, and then we discover that decision will cost us a great deal, and we're inclined not to do it. The cost is too great. But uh, Psalm 15 speaks of the righteous man or woman who swears to his own hurt. That is, he follows through. He's faithful. He does what he says even though it's very costly. In this case, uh, Israel had sworn to the Gibeonites, and he had to keep his word. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. And then parenthetically, the Lord had said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. So here is this, uh, the theme, the the. Uh, uh, the motif that runs all the way through the book of Joshua. We are fighting a battle that's already won. This is God's battle. The spiritual battle in which we're engaged is not our battle. It is his. Every demand upon us is a demand uh, upon him. And uh, uh, therefore, Joshua is told not to be afraid. Now, I have to ask the question, why does God say to Joshua, don't be afraid? Well, that's because Joshua was running scared. Uh, he was afraid most of the time. This is typical of the heroes of faith. These were not extraordinary men and women. These were very ordinary people who sensed very keenly their inadequacies, their limitations. These were men and women made out of mud. They were nothing more than uh, dirt and a little bit of water. And they recognized their frailties. Uh, and uh, when they were under attack, when they were under pressure, when, when things were heating up, they, they became fearful. But here is this assuring word, the same word that our Lord gave to the disciples over and over again. Don't keep on fearing. I have given them into your hand. 
Not one of them will be able to withstand you. You are fighting a battle that's already won. So uh, Joshua and, uh, uh, put his uh, armies uh, on the road. And after an all-night march, it was some 15 to 18 miles from Gilgal up to Gibeon, Joshua took them by surprise. In the ancient world, sieges were begun early in the morning. They did not fight at night. They rested at night, and then they took up arms early the next morning. And this is apparently what was happening uh, about dawn as they were preparing to besiege the city of Gibeon. Joshua fell upon them, and he took them by surprise. They were not expecting this uh, this attack. And and the Lord, we're told, threw them into confusion. Now, the, the most of the translations miss the the thrust and the impact of these verses because the assumption is made that Israel is the one that does the fighting. But the text consistently uses a third-person singular pronoun, he. And uh, the closest uh, uh, referent is to God. And if we read it that way, uh, we will see what the author is trying to, uh, the, the idea that the author is trying to convey. The Lord threw them into confusion. Uh, the word simply means to make a lot of noise. We don't know what God did, but something happened in the early dawn hours that panicked this uh, this federation of Amorites. And then we're told that he, not Israel, but he defeated them in a great victory at Gibeon. He, that is the Lord, pursued them along the road going up to Beth Horon. Now certainly these were the Israelites uh, who were engaged in battle. Nevertheless, it was God who was who had undertaken for them. And he pursued them along the road going up. The ascent to Beth Horon, it's a 10-mile uh, uh, uphill run all the way to the ridge. What began as a strategic withdrawal became a rout. He cut them down all the way to Azekah and Makedah. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon, the descent from Beth Horon to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them from the sky. Most of them died from the hailstones then were killed by the swords of the Israelites. This was the normal route that anyone would take from Gibeon to the coast, from Beth Horon up to the, uh, pardon me, from Gibeon up to the ridge on which Beth Horon was located, and then down a very rocky, perilous, precipitous slope. It, it drops about a thousand feet in two miles down to the valley of Agilon. If you go there today, you'll see steps cut in the in the road. Uh, is so steep, you have to go down what amounts to a, a stone ladder in order to get to the bottom in some portions. You can see what happened as this army fled down this uh, narrow rocky route. They were thrown into panic. Many of them fell to their death. Uh, the Lord cast hailstones upon them. The weather turned against them, and, and the steps, I would assume, turned to ice. They began to slip and fall down, and uh, we're told more were killed in the descent then uh, Joshua and his armies uh, killed. The weather fought for them. Uh, Job says that God uh, keeps the snow in his storehouses to use at a time in a time of war. It would be interesting at some point to see how God used weather, and particularly adverse weather conditions, uh, as his weapons to fight against Israel's enemies. There's a very graphic illustration in the book of Judges. It's the story of Barak and Deborah. Actually, it's the story of Deborah. Deborah was a judge uh, in Israel, not a judgeette nor a judgess. Uh, she was a full-fledged judge. She adjudicated cases between Israelites who couldn't agree. Uh, she uh, 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 
she met under a palm tree near the city of Bethel, and uh, she she decided uh, legal issues for the Israelites. She was told that uh, the folks that lived up north in what today is Galilee were under a great deal of pressure from the inhabitants of the city of Hatzor. And so she beckoned and, and called uh, uh, Barak, a young man from that region, and said, you're God's man for this job. And he said, no, I'm not. Uh, and she said, yes, you are. You're God's man. And he said, I won't go unless you go with me. And she agreed to go with him and placed his army strategically on Mount Tabor, and if you read the account in Judges 4, it just seems like a simple, straightforward account of an army that had a strategic position, and they came down the mountain out of concealment and routed the uh, the armies of the people from Hatzor. Uh, they came with their chariots. Israel had no chariots. The battle turned, and uh, their chariots, uh, the horses were panicked, and they fled, and they were able to defeat uh, the army of Hatzor. What you don't realize until chapter 5 is that what actually turned the tables on, the, on Israel's enemies was a storm. Great storm swept in from the Mediterranean, flooded the Kishon Valley. The chariots were rendered useless. Israelites, or the, uh, the Hatzorites could not fight out of their chariots, and Israel won. Uh, the, uh, the poem makes that very clear. There's a statement there, the heavens fought against Jabin, king of Hatzor. That's God using all the weapons at his disposal, which include the elements of nature, to fight for his people. And that's what he did for Israel. There's this vast confederation. They, they, they outnumbered the Israelites. And again, they were far, uh, uh, they had far larger armies, better equipped armies. They had chariots. Israel had none of these things. Uh, and yet God fought on their behalf, and they were able to, uh, to defeat the, uh, uh, the southern federation of Amorites. Now, I want you to get a picture in your mind. Joshua goes up to the pass at Beth Horon. He sees the Amorites fleeing down this uh, ravine, and he realizes that they're going to escape, that most of them will be able to get back to their cities, and there would be no way to consummate the victory. So he does a remarkable thing. Verse 12. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, in other words, he put his faith on the line, Son, stand still over Gibeon, Gibeon was to the east of Joshua. Moon over the valley of Ajalon. The moon would be to the west. The valley of Ajalon was uh, westward of uh, of Beth Horon. So the sun stood still. And the moon stopped. Till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. As it is written in the book of Jasher. Now this is actually a quote from uh, from another source. The book of Jasher. Uh, Yasher in Hebrew means righteous. This is the book of the righteous ones. This is the book of men and women who have authentic faith. They are not heroes in any uh, historical sense of the word, in the the sense in which we use that word. They were heroes of of faith. This uh, book occurs again, or at least a reference to this book, in 2 Samuel 1. Apparently this was a compilation of stories of men and women who were noted for their faith. Uh, and in this case, uh, there's a story about Joshua and something highly unusual about, about this particular instance. And the book of Joshua goes on to tell us the sun stopped in the middle of the day and delayed going down about a full day. It didn't actually stop. It, just pro- uh, it was prolonged in its course through the heavens 
so that the the day uh, was elongated. It was there was another twelve hours added to the day. You ever have a day when you wish you had uh, another twelve hours to complete what you want to complete? You have this this big job to do, and you can't get it done, and you wish there was another twelve hours of daylight. Well, that's exactly what Joshua did. He asked for additional time, another twelve hours of of daylight, and it was given to him. And the author of uh, this book of Jasher, whom the, whom the author of Joshua quotes, says there never has been a day like it before or since. A day when the Lord listened to a man. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. That's the bottom line. That's, that's the punchline of, of this story. God was fighting for Israel. And this man, this, this completely human man, the, all the heroes in the ancient Near East are demigods. They're, they're semi-gods, but not Joshua. He's a very normal Ordinary man, there's nothing extraordinary about him. He had his ups and downs. He had his good days, his bad days. He failed and he succeeded. He was a man of faith at, at one moment, and and he failed in faith at another moment. He's a very ordinary person, but on this occasion, he said to the sun, "Stop moving," and he said to the moon, "Stop moving," and it stopped. And the author of the book says there never has been a day like that before or after when God hearkened to the voice of of a man. Actually, if you look at the passage very carefully, it's not a prayer at all. The text says he prayed. But what he did was address himself to the sun and the moon. By the way, I saw I saw something exactly like this uh, last Wednesday. I was on my way over to Seattle, Carolyn and I and and uh, Carolyn's mother to have a thanks spend Thanksgiving with with our son and daughter-in-law. And uh, as we traveled on our way to Seattle, we just got a little bit out of voice. So we looked back to the west. We could see the sun rising. And after, pardon me, look back to the east. And the sun was rising. And, you, and, and look to the west. And you see the moon going down. That's exactly what Joshua saw. And so he had a long morning. The sun slowed down. And it, uh, he says it was about an, another day. I assume a day of daylight, which would be 12 hours, given to them. So they could consummate uh, the victory. Now, this is the language of appearance. I, I don't know what what view of the universe Joshua had, whether it was geocentric or not. He, he was a pre-scientific man. Men back then didn't know what we know today uh, about the relationship of this, the sun and our planets and, and the earth. This is simply the language of appearance. It's what it looked like to Joshua, and we say this sort of thing all the time. Even uh, uh, weathermen who are scientists talk about the sun rising the sun setting. It would be a little awkward to say uh, the earth rotated enough so you could see the sun in the morning. And and we don't say those kinds of things. This is the language of appearance, phenomenal language, as uh, as theologians refer to it. Nothing unhistorical, nothing unscientific about this. From Joshua's standpoint, the sun just slowed down, and, and so did the moon. And it all happened because he commanded the sun to stop moving or to slow down, and it happened. It actually happened. Now, I don't know how it happened. Uh, perhaps the Earth slowed in its rotation. Scientists say all uh, terrible things would happen if that occurred. You know, the mantle would slip and there would be earthquakes and there would be all sorts of disaster, disastrous things that would occur. I don't, I don't know whether that's what happened or whether in some way that light was refracted so that, that you know, the light rays were... We're bent. Maybe this was the miracle in that sense that the day was pro. I don't know. All I know is it was a miracle. It was a miracle. And we can explain it away in various ways, but if you read the text, there's no question about it. It's a miracle. 
I don't have any problem with this as long as I believe that God is who he is. The real issue in dealing with miracles is whether or not God controls the elements of nature. Is he the creator or is he not? If I believe Genesis 1, that he created the heavens and earth, then he could stop or slow the earth and its rotation. and He could control whatever consequences would accrue as a result. I don't have any problem with that because I don't have any problem with believing that God is sufficiently powerful to deal with any, uh, with any contingencies. He is the Lord of the universe. He controls the universe. And if he wants to suspend temporarily the laws of nature, then that's his uh, privilege. Uh, I, often in explaining miracles to people who have trouble with them, I use a, a little analogy that's sometimes helpful. Uh, you have to realize that our so-called laws of nature are nothing more than the result of the observations of scientists. They're not laws in the sense that they came down written on stone. They're, they're the result of scientific observation. Now, imagine, for example, if, if some Martians came to visit uh, uh, Earth. They'd never been to Earth before. They'd never seen anything quite like us. And there's these little tiny Martians in this little bitty space capsule. And they came down over Boise, and, and they were observing uh, our traffic patterns, and they were taking notes. They were scientific types. And they were good observers, and they noticed these little vehicles that run up and down our streets. Uh, and uh, they observe a law at work that when the light turns red, the little vehicles stop. And when the lights turn green, the vehicles move. And so they, they deduce from that, or it's actually it's an induction, they, they, they say, well, uh, okay, red, uh, the red light controls these vehicles, and when the light is red, they stop. And when the light is green, they go. It's a law. So they write that down as a, a physical law governing earthlings. And then they see this elongated red uh, vehicle with a red light on top and uh, making a funny sound, uh, rush through the middle of town, and it ignores the red light. It goes right through the red light, and the little Martian says, Aha! A miracle. <laughs> now, you see, that's the, that's the way we have to look at these seeming violations of natural law. There is an intelligence, there, there is something, a dynamic, there's something else going on behind the scenes that we're not always aware of. And uh, if God wants to uh, change the, the orbits of the planets, if he wants to slow down the rotation of the earth, uh, that's well within his, uh, his right, his prerogative. And apparently that's what happened on this, uh, on this occasion. Now, um, I, I, I want to come back to that, to that event in a moment, but I want to go on uh, to summarize the rest of the chapter because it all fits together. The culmination of the conflict with this federation of, of five kings as well as all of the cities to the south of Canaan follow. We're told that the five kings who headed up this federation fled and hid in a cave in Machedah. <clears throat> the word Beth Horon means house of caves, so apparently there were a lot of caves in this, in this region. And uh, they, were, they became subject to Israel. And then in verse 29... Joshua and all Israel with him moved on from Machedah to Libna and attacked it. The Lord also gave that city and its king into, Israel, into Israel's hand. There's a little map in your uh, bulletin. If you want to take that out and look at it, it will show you the location of some of these cities. Uh, Joshua and all Israel then moved from Libna to Lachish. And there, uh, they, there was fierce resistance, uh, hard hand-to-hand combat, house-to-house fighting through the streets of 
of Lachish. It was not uh, an easy city to, uh, to take. And they went down to Gezer. And they were told that Horam, king of Gezer, had come up to help Lachish. In other words, he left his walled city and he went out into the open uh, to help the king of Libna. And he was defeated. I mentioned, I think, when I gave an introduction to Joshua, a friend of mine who went to, uh, to Israel to, uh, on, an, on an archaeological dig. And uh, he went to the city of Gezer. And because he was a neophyte, uh, they put him out on the outskirts of the dig so he wouldn't do any harm. Gave him a few students and, and some uh, Arab uh, laborers to, uh, to work with him. And he wanted to be faithful to the task, so he dug hard. Came down on what appeared to be a Roman uh, street. He First, great big blocks, and then he widened it, discovered it was about 45 feet wide, which is about the distance from his pulpit to the back of the of the auditorium. And for a while, they, they thought it was a, the remains of a Roman road. But as they sunk a trench alongside, they discovered that he had come down right on the top of the tower that guarded the, the entrance to the city, which is one of the premium finds in any, any archaeological dig. And as they dug down, they found that this tower was 65 feet high. That's three times the height of this wall over here. And uh, the walls themselves were some 45 to 50 feet high around the city with a sloping uh, wall on the outside. Uh, uh, The the city was impregnable. Uh, They know now that Gezer was characterized by one of the most formidable defense systems in in the whole land of Palestine. Probably the only other city like it is Megiddo. And uh, here was what Israel faced, and yet uh, God sent a spirit of foolishness on the Gezerites, and they left their walled city, and they got out into the open uh, where they could be defeated. Then Joshua and all Israel moved from Lachish to Eglon, and they attacked it and captured it. And then to Hebron, where the sons of Anak were, the, the giants, the, uh, these men of monstrous stature who had frightened the Israelites when they first uh, entered the land. And then they went on to Debir. Uh, where there was a cache of Canaanite uh, books, perhaps. It was an ancient library, perhaps of occult literature. And they attacked and subdued that city. And they were told in verse 40 that Joshua subdued the whole region. In verse 42, all these kings and their lands, Joshua conquered one campaign because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel, which, as I said, is the theme or the bottom line of this entire story. Uh, it, It strikes me as I read through this account of the feet of, of the southern coalition and then the conquest of these cities is that there were days when the fighting was tough. There were days when it was relatively easy. Uh, there were times when God worked a minor miracle, uh, such as a gezer. There were the times when he worked no miracles at all. They simply had to stay on their feet and fight for all they were worth. There were good times. There were bad times. So this is the way it, it was in Joshua's day. This is the way it will always be. You will win a few and lose a few. And interestingly enough, they actually lost some of the cities that they gained in this campaign. We know that uh, Caleb, for example, uh, had to refight the battle of Hebron and take that city. The city of Jerusalem, if it was taken in this campaign, had to be recaptured uh, by David. That was some 500 years later. It was in the hands of the Jebusites all that time. Uh, the city of Deborah was taken by the Ephraimites much later, so some of these cities were lost that had been uh, gained in this in this fighting. It's true to life. That's the way it is. Yeah, I, I talked about that the first day we, we looked at the book of Joshua. There is this idea of now and not yet. Now and not yet. You, you, you have these statements. You conquered the whole land. That's what it says here. But then you turn to chapter 13. It says there's much land to be gained. So that, we again, there is a spirit of victory and conquest that God gives to us 
we're aware of the fact that we're fighting a battle that's already won and there will be victories in this land, but we don't get it all now. We don't get it all until the Lord comes back. There will be disastrous defeats at times. We will be humiliated and embarrassed. We will fail in our faith. There will be failure of nerve. It's just the way it is. This is life in the land. And the Israelites, uh, this is what Israel experienced, and this is what we will experience as well. Now, I want to go back to the story of, uh, of Joshua and the, uh, his, his command to the sun and, and stars. And I want to digress a little bit. At first, this is not going to seem to have any relevancy, whatever, to the passage, but I think I'll be able to uh, draw it together at, at the end. I said earlier, what Joshua did, he did as a, as a human being. He was not a demigod. He, 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 was not, he, was not a, he was just a common, ordinary man. Nothing extraordinary about him. And uh, he stood on the heights of Beth Horon, and he addressed himself to the sun, and he said, all right, sun, slow down. And the sun slowed down. It reminds me of something the New Testament says of Elijah. He's a man of like passion. In other words, he's a human being, just like us. And he said, it's not going to rain for three years, and it didn't rain for three years, and then he said it's going to rain, and it rained. Here, here is the, the, what James calls the prayer of a righteous man. And again, I go back to this book of Yasher, the book of the righteous ones. This is the authority that righteous men and women have. They can, they can ask audacious things. Or, as we used to say in Texas, you, this is a bodacious kind of faith. There, there, is a, there is a tremendous authority that's given to us as mere human beings to ask and receive. And you notice the statement here. This man was a man that God listened to. He heard him. And he stopped the sun and moon in its course. Enormous authority and power. Now, uh, here's where I want to digress. I want you to turn with me to Psalm 8, if you will. As I've said before, this is the psalm that made a humanist out of me. As long as you understand what I mean by a humanist, uh, there are secular humanists and there are theistic humanists. I am a theistic humanist. I believe that man is great. The important thing is to know what makes him great, and that's the issue here in this, uh, in this psalm. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's the theme, the majesty of, of our Lord. You set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. In other words, the strongest argument that God can make against his detractors is a child. Why? Because there's something unique about a child. It's not true of any other part of creation. No other animal. No animal. I don't like to think of, of us as animals because we're, we're of a different class according to Scripture. And a child has a uniqueness about him or her that, that the highest uh, orders of animal life do not have. And, and a child can know God. That's the whole point. A child can praise God. A child has a spiritual dimension that a dolphin or any other uh, highly intelligent animal doesn't have. Uh, this is the passage, you know, that Jesus quoted in the temple when the little kids were running to the temple and they were singing and laughing and praising God. And the clergy said, you know, shut those kids up. And God said, get off their back. Our Lord said, get off their back, leave them alone. Out of the mouth of babes, God is adoring, ordained praise. It is the mark of the greatness of man that he can know God and praise him. 
And it's a mark of the greatness of God. That's the point. That he's made man so that he can know him. That's what makes God majestic or establishes his majesty. And that he has made man as he has made him. Now he goes on to raise the question, what is man that you're mindful of him? What makes man great? Or the son of man that you care for him? That's simply Hebrew parallelism. Son of man equals man. What is man that you take thought of him, the son of man, that you care about him. In other words, what is it that makes man great? Is it an 18-inch bicep? Is it his capacity to bench press 350 pounds? Is it because he can run the 40 and 4-5? Uh, what is it that makes a woman great? Is it her ability to, to run a, a vast and complex business? No. No, what makes us great is God. That's his point. Our greatness comes from our relationship to God and is what God has made of us. Verse 5, you made him a little lower than God, literally, the text says. We're the most nearly godlike beings on the face of the earth and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, and then he specifies in the verses that follow. In other words, man is Lord of creation. He has power over creation. Now, some of you already think I've gone around the bend, but some of you are going to be convinced after I get through this morning. This is just speculation, okay? I don't like to speculate, but when Scripture seems trends toward this sort of, you know, I like to at least share some of my thinking. So you check this out on your own. I believe this passage and another passage we'll look at in a moment suggests that that originally in our unfallen state, men had this kind of control over nature. They could, Adam could have stopped storms. He could have walked on the water. He could have done things that were contrary to laws of, of nature, not because he wanted to. You know, he didn't call on us to stop raining just because he, wanted, he didn't even want to have a picnic. It's not that sort of thing. It, it, if it served the purposes of God, I believe Adam had control over creation. The, the psalm says that was God's original intention, to rule over creation. If a typhoon was coming, man could stop it before it destroyed human life. But in our fallen state, we have lost that control over nature. Now, I believe the New Testament teaches that. Turn with me to Hebrews 2, where this passage is quoted. Now, the argument of Hebrews is that Jesus is unique, there's no one like him, People to whom this book was written were thinking of abandoning their Christian faith and going back into Judaism. And the argument through the book of uh, Hebrews is that Jesus is uh, better than anything else. You're giving up the best thing in the world if you do that. He argues that way in chapter 1 by establishing our Lord's deity. He argues in chapter 2 by establishing his humanity. In other words, not only is Jesus God, I fully believe that, he's fully God, but he's fully man. Man as man was intended to be in the beginning, in his unfallen state. Now, notice how he argues. He quotes the passage that we just read in Psalm 8. I love that phrase. There's, there's a place where somewhere it is testified. Uh, that's, what, that's the way I quote the Old Testament. I never can remember where anything is. I just say somewhere it says. And, and apparently the author feels the same way. But this, is, this is Psalm 8. Then he concludes. Uh, Verse 8b, in putting everything under him, him, man, you and me, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Man, not not the Lord Jesus in, in this particular place. 
not capital H, us. Originally, everything was subject to us, which includes uh, the forces of nature. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. We can't control the elements today, but we do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. He was made a man. Now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, he's entered into, he's come into his own, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone, and bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus is our older brother, he's the firstborn, we are likewise sons of God, we share his sonship. We have not come into our own yet. We do not see the world subject to us, but we see the world subject to him. Jesus' miracles were not the miracles. Uh, Jesus' miracles were not done through his deity. hope you understand that. Nowhere in the New Testament does it say that the miracles were proof of his deity, nor were they done because he was God. As a matter of fact, the scripture says just the opposite. Jesus said, I never, I never do anything except what I see the Father doing. I do nothing of myself. He never acted out of his deity. Never. He only acted out of his humanity. His humanity dependent upon God. He was man as God originally uh, intended man to be. Sinless, perfect, unfallen man. Jesus did his miracles not as God, but as man dependent upon God as man was originally intended to act. Remember the story of the, the storm on the sea. Jesus is in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and the ship's going down and the apostles are panicking and they say, don't you even care that we perish? And Jesus had already said to him, let's get in the boat and go to the other side. He didn't say, let's get in the boat and go out in the middle and sink. You know, he intended to get over there to the other side. He wanted the purposes of God to be fulfilled. He stood up without any fear or panic, and he spoke to the wind and the waves. And he said, hush. Literally, that's the word, hush. And the sea became like glass. Did he do that as God? No. He did that as man dependent upon God to show us the power that man originally had. Now, what about Jesus walking on the water? Was that a sign of his deity? No, because Peter did it too. And Peter wasn't God. He was a mere man. But on that occasion, God permitted him to exercise the authority that man had over the elements. Now, what I want us to understand is that we are Jesus' younger brothers. And one of these days, we're going to come into our own and in the eternal state throughout heaven. Apparently, that, that power will be restored to us and we will have authority over the elements. But now and then, there are flashes of glory. What C.S. Lewis called serendipities. Happy surprises. Where God permits us for just one moment to see the authority that man was originally intended to have. I think that's what you see in Joshua. Joshua could command the sun. The author of Joshua says that's a unique day. It's never a day like that. But that was a day when a mere man commanded the sun and the moon. And they slowed down. Elijah prayed. And it didn't rain for three years. And I believe that now and again, not always, but now and again, we will see those kinds of experiences in our own life where we will act out of that authority that Jesus gave us and we will see miracles happen. Not always. That's why I read the last part of, of that chapter because sometimes it's just tough sledding. Sometimes you're down there in the pit and you know, you just, you're, you're just duking it out. 
And, and sometimes there are no miracles. You pray for health, and it doesn't come. You just have to live with your sickness. And you pray for your, for your husband to turn around spiritually, and he doesn't. And you just have to forbear and wait for God to work. And you learn the lessons of faith and obedience in the meantime. And you never know about God, but there are those times when we ask, not selfishly, but we ask according to God's will, and he acts contrary to nature in order to accomplish a miracle. And, and all we're doing is behaving as man was intended to behave. And this is sort of the down payment on the, on, on the, the, the complete uh, thing, the, the, what we're going to receive when our Lord Jesus comes back. What I want to get across to you is that we can ask for big things. The problem is our God's too small, and we don't see the authority that we have. We're afraid to ask. We ask for these puny little things instead of asking for great requests. It's all right to ask, as long as we say, not my will, but yours be done. I'm out of time. I had a bunch of illustrations. I just want to give you one. I'm always reluctant to talk about uh, what happens to me because I don't want to give the wrong impression. But I I came to Boise. I, I just started praying that. That God would use me to touch the state. I just sensed that there were people all over the place that didn't know the gospel and didn't had never heard about about Jesus. And I I just I just wanted to, I just wanted people to know the gospel. That's all. And and uh, so I just began to pray that God would do something. I didn't think Christian radio was the answer, at least not up here, because I don't think non Christians listen to Christian radio very much. It, Somehow I just felt that there needed to be some other way to go about it. Basically the same prayer that I, I, I've prayed wherever I've been. Just, Lord, use me to touch lives. And, and most of you know what happened. Uh, Bill Edlin began to write his column. He asked for permission to write it. He began to write. Some of the Christians got upset. They appealed to the statesman. And, and uh, just out of the blue, statesman asked me to write that little column. I sit down every week. You know, I agonize over the thing and scratch the thing out. And I never... Forget the miracle that God did on that on that occasion. Uh, I have deep appreciation for the statesmen and the people over there. I really love them. But the fact that an evangelical Christian, as outspoken as I am, has the privilege every every Saturday, every other Saturday, of proclaiming the gospel is nothing short of a miracle. It just doesn't happen in most in most uh, newspapers. And I drive around this state. And I see these little orange tubes, you know, or yellow tubes that say statesmen. And I find those things all over the place. And these out-of-way little, you know, places. And here's this little pipe. It's a statesman. I know that every other Saturday a newspaper goes in there. And I don't even know if they read the column. But it's there. And, if anybody, and I believe God has the capacity to lead someone to the column to read it. And I've had people come to Christ as a result and write and tell me about it. And I just, I just have to say, it's a miracle. It's all. It's just a flat-out miracle. And I, you know, I think we can ask those kinds of miracles. You can ask for the health of your child if it glorifies and honors God. You can ask for the salvation of your neighbors, your business associates. You can ask for your husband to change. It's always, or your wife. You know, I don't know why I always pick on, pick on men. Uh, it, it's all right. You can ask for those things. Jesus said to his disciples, you say to this mountain, move, and it'll move. And he's pointing to the Mount of Transfiguration, Mount Tabor. If you've ever been to Israel, I mean, that's a huge chunk of rock. And he, he says, you say to that mountain, move, it'll move, if it's God's will. See, that, that's the key. If it's God's will, he can do it. He can do it. problem is not with God, it's with us. We, we don't have that kind of faith. Our God's too small. 
We, we don't believe in asking. Big. As John Newton put it, you're coming to a king. Large petitions with you bring. For his grace and power are such none can ever ask too much. Let's stand together, shall we? And let's together commit ourselves to God and to his purposes and ask him to, to increase our faith. Father, we uh, come to this, this text just as, as our friend Joshua came to every, every conflict, sensing our inadequacy, knowing that, that we're incompetent, that we don't have what it takes to be the kind of men and women that, that uh, you've called us to be, asked us to be, have encouraged us to be. We want to have the kind of audacious faith that characterized this man who, who believed that you could do anything, who believed, as our Lord told us, that with you nothing is impossible. We just want to be in line with you. We want to know what your purposes are so we can pray with this kind of faith and this kind of authority, and we want your will to be done. Help us to get a new picture of you as we think back through this passage this week and realize your greatness and your power, your availability to us. Help us to remember this this unique day where you uh, listened to the voice of a man. Thank you for the encouragement that comes out of out of this chapter, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.